Welcome once again to the Old Statute Podcast, episode seven today, and uh, we've got another guest with us today, Anthony. So thanks for joining us, Anthony. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by East Coast Recovery, uh, an online addiction treatment centre based in the east of England. This episode is sponsored by Rehabs UK, the definitive place to go to find rehabilitation treatment and advice. So once again today, we're joined by Anthony. Um, been in recovery now for around eleven years. Came through ECR no Leicester this whole time and understand you guys have kept in touch as well now I know you've done a lot of things since the since the sort of 11 years uh, and your time in recovery you've worked in homeless centers you've worked with the YMCA you've worked with county lines so you've given a lot of yourself to other people Um, so I'm sure there's amazing stories there that we really want to get into but before we get to that point before you arrived at ECR even can you tell us a little bit about how it all began for you? Yeah, so um, again, as I say, when I go to a meeting, which is not so often nowadays, but it was just a few days ago I said it in an online meeting, don't really want to uh, labour that too much, but mm-hmm. um, as is with a lot of people, and I said on the car journey on the way here, that uh, it was innocent and naive when I was 13 and uh, uh, some lads had some some weed um, and it was innocent and naive to say, right, I want to go on this and this is how I all started smoking a bit of cannabis and it's quite often the case that a lot of people start off from that point. But just quickly, and then I'll go on to that, is that there's a degree of stupidity in my mind as well to do that because whether I was 13 or not or whether I was uh, in a family where addiction was quite the case or whether it wasn't we all know it isn't such a good idea deep down but we do it anyway mm-hmm. so yeah I started smoking do cannabis do you think that's kind of like because there's not it's not a good idea it's the rebellious bit of the rebellious nature you kind of want to rebel so it's like smoking you might not like it yeah but well it is that it's, it's interesting isn't it we, even with my children if I say don't go and touch that over there there's a part of them that's like right I want to go touch this over there and I think it's the same that if society and mum and dad and the school are saying, don't smoke that weed, it will make you a bit mad, I want to know what a bit mad is. Well, who, who were the cool kids? <laughs> who were the ones that were doing these behind the school shed? <laughs> I didn't want to be with Joe and Mary and Tom and Harry all sat there figuring out, you know, their, their maths and stuff. I wanted to be with the cool kids. So it was innocent and naive and, and relatively consequence-free at the beginning of smoking cannabis. Mm-hmm. And over the space, and again, as I said in my experience, that things are progressive. Um, and it certainly was the case with me, and not just months, but years. And then another decade beyond those years that got me to the point of, we'll probably get to that later on in the podcast, mm-hmm. that... And then started to take amphetamines when I was 15, 16. And then ecstasy came on the scene. And, you know, this was back in the late 90s. And that was a huge thing. And I've got to say, I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, I didn't... Yeah, I've got to say, I didn't thieve at that point. I held down a job. My mum and dad were relatively unaware Although if I have a conversation with them now, they might say no, we know, but it certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't causing arguments within the family home. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody said, "Why are you doing drugs?" Because this is always interesting to me. This 
bit that you're talking about is because a lot of the time, and I think people often do it to elicit emotion or self-pity or pity from other people that they go, oh, you know, I took drugs because of a bad childhood or all that kind of thing. And in, in the rehab, I often used to ask that question, why did you start taking drugs? And people go, oh, you know, I was molested, my dad left, my mum, I'm gay, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> not to undermine any of that stuff because it obviously happens to people but it's like no no why did you start drinking and taking drugs and like you said there you didn't think oh I feel like I've got low self worth I'm going to go and smoke some pot or I've got low self worth so I'm going to go to a rave and take ecstasy it's that was not a conscious thought at all. And, and for most people, when you break it down, it's actually not. They mm. only sort of come to that when it becomes troublesome for them. Yes. Then somebody asks, why are you doing it? Yeah. Then they think, oh, it's because yeah. of, of, of this. I don't think many people go, oh, I've got low self-esteem. I need some heroin. Mm. They just sort of, it ends up there because, uh, but mostly they just, it's a social thing that they start doing and it, it just gets out of hand. And then... I- I even think then, and it's only because I've worked with so many people, that that is a it's, a, it's a default excuse. Mum and dad are doing this, I was molested, I've got low self-esteem, you know, I was bullied at school, or whatever it may be. I think that you learn as the months and the years go on and being around other people that are using substances, because you're not going to be knocking around with people that don't use substances if you do substances. You're only going to be knocking around with people that do substances. You learn that if you want to capture the emotion of the person asking why you're doing the substances, fall onto a story like that. Yeah, yeah, because you get the people that they say, look, if that's the case, and again, there's a big thing that all people are addicts because of trauma. And again, I'm not discounting that completely. I just don't completely subscribe to that. Mm. Because I don't believe it's the truth. I think it's people's reaction to trauma. And it's hard to find people that that haven't got some sort of trauma that they could point it at. And again, I do think that is a bit of a catalyst uh, to a degree that makes people more susceptible to becoming a full-blown sort of drug addict or alcoholic. But I definitely think that um, you get the guys that then go, I can't put my finger on any of that in my Mm. childhood. And I'm still having the same experience as them. Yeah. I wonder, Anthony, if you could um, tell me that story again that you told me on the way here in the car about the two twins. Uh, Yeah, well, I think... um, I think that really puts it into perspective for a lot of people. mm, I think it was on, but Lester Moore, one of Lester's employees in the treatment centre that we heard this years ago of the social worker that was working with some twins, twin girls, hypothetically speaking, and the twin girls, their mum and dads were drug addicts and alcoholics. And the social worker was in their lives for several years until they became adults. And then that relationship, that professional relationship ended just because they became adults. And it's just the way it is. Um, and the social worker retired <coughs> and she moved away. And anyway, she visited the town where she left uh, as a retiree. Um, and she thought, I really want to catch up with Sarah and Kelly, um, for instance. Um, to see how they're doing. I really enjoyed working with them. I hope they're okay. And then one day she she tracks down Sarah and she goes to this really run-down, uh, deprived council estate with rubbish in the garden and drawn curtains and looking quite dark and not a very attractive-looking house. And she knocks on the door and, hey, presto, Sarah answers the door, looking quite ill and daunt and not well-nutritioned, um, with her head down. And... 
she makes contact with makes makes conversation. How are you? I ain't seen you for a few years. You know how is everything? Well, I'm I'm on heroin and methadone, and my kids have been taken, and life's not good, and I might be going to prison next month. Well, what do you expect with a mum and dad like mine? And then the next day, the social worker she goes back to the hotel and a little bit, you know, sad because of what she's seen. And the next day, she tracks down the other twin, um, Sarah, for instance. And she shows up to a really nice middle-class estate. She shows up to this house that looks really nice and clean and curtains open and looks bright and welcoming and warm and homely inside and got a nice car in the garden and flowers and the lawn's cut, everything's done. And she knocks on the door and the other twin opens it and looking in her office clothes, kids happily playing in the background. And, oh, how are you? I haven't seen you for a few years. I just wanted to catch up with you. Well, I'm fantastic. You know, I've got a good job. My husband's doing well in his business. The children are doing well at school. The house is coming along nice. She says, well, what do you expect of a mum and dad like mine? And it's the response and the perception. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that trauma is no, I think the... It is the or, yeah, I think it is the response. I think mm. in the AA book, it always uh, it was an important bit to me that took me a few years to actually understand. But it said, look, the world and the people are quite often wrong. There's no denying that a lot of people have had bad parenting or been abused. and But it's not all of them turn into drug addicts and alcoholics. So it can't just be trauma alone. It has to be how the person responds to it. And I personally think that that's the part that we need to look at to say, I need to, I do, that part of me, I need to keep a close eye on because it's about my responses to what's going on in life because I find things quite traumatic. And again, having a wife that's a non-alcoholic, non-addict, I find things that are quite traumatic that don't even register on her scale. And she's like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't really know. It shocks me how traumatising I can find such simple things usually to do with government and authority i find authority quite traumatic not you know but it's my response to it yeah i I relate to that actually yeah i think a lot the last three years and it is and if we're gonna if we're gonna use that as a precedent trauma and all of its varying you know, all of the varying circumstances and life situations and life events that might happen that might cause trauma within us, then you're going to be, you're going to find it very difficult to find any adult on this planet that hasn't got trauma because life happens to us. We all lose loved ones, we all fail and we all succeed. It's very Well, it doesn't have to be anything kids. even major. No, it, it, can, be, it, it can be, I was bullied for it, two days oh, at school. You're it can dad be looking at you with an angry face yeah. when you're in a. A vulnerable moment of your emotional growth. Mm. It doesn't even have. It doesn't even have to be a major because thing. it's a response thing. Yes. But again, I'm. I don't disagree with trauma, but I think the response bit is. It's a responsibility. It's my responsibility mm. to see how I'm responding. I think that's where the best work. Yeah. Gets done. So I didn't want to take you off your path too much. There, I just thought that's such an important point for me mm. to uh, to try and highlight to people that. It's about, and again, I think that's why I love the 12 step program because it's all about infantry, it's all about looking at your responses. It's mm. acknowledging the world and the people are wrong, but it's looking at the way you're responding to that and try and get more healthy, more constructive responses mm. and building them into your, to your life, which is it's not a natural thing for me, it's something I have to manually 
do, which is called work in the program. I manually have to, um, f and, and I don't always know. I've, I come from a family that's not great at dealing with problems. I have to find other people to sometimes say, I don't know what to do here. Can mm. you teach me how to respond better to this problem? The response I got is usually quite aggressive. I find if I'm unsure, I can become aggressive very quickly. Mm. Not that I don't go punching people. Feel like it, but I don't. emotionally aggressive. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I understand. Push yeah. people away, so that's not such a good thing. So sorry about that. It's probably a bit off the track. So sort of back to uh, to back to you, mate. To your we we what we, what you sort of growing up was like. You you've gone into to the rave scene. Yeah, I've gone into into the rave scene. It's probably important to add as well now, and then I'll come back. My mum and dad did the best with what they could, and I can't really fault them. With what they had, they did the best that they could, I think. Um, <clears throat> probably, my mum and dad, their parents were worse parents than what mine were. But I always had a nice, welcoming home, a clean bed. There was always food. My, my school clothes were always cleaned. And there was certainly no abuse in the house. Not uh, physical or sexual. We, we might say neglect, but that's why I wanted to emphasise they did the best with what they knew at the time. Um, so yeah, I went into the rave scene. I think I was seventeen or eighteen. I can't remember exactly. And this is where the having fun, the innocence, the relatively consequence-free uh, recreational use of drugs, even amphetamines and cannabis use, even though I was using every day. Really, I, I, it was a good four or five years of things didn't get that bad. And then when I was eighteen, I remember we came back from a nightclub. And this uh, this this fella came came to my mate's shed and he had some heroin. And, you know, going back, was that 17? This is, this is 23, 24 years ago. And going back then, heroin was not, it was kind of, it wasn't as on the scene as what it is now. So, I think again, it become part of the rave scene for some people, though, didn't yes, it? It's a come yeah. down, a way of, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it sounds completely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> And there was a lack of understanding about what it was. I don't know where the train spotting was at at the time. And the reason that I say mm. a movie about it, it was train spotting brought a great awareness mm. to the nature of the devastating effects of heroin addiction. I mm. think it really did a lot for people's like, whoa, I didn't realise that heroin was like that. And I think it did a great job at creating awareness. But anyway, I was like the same as I was when I was that 13-year-old boy and I wanted to smoke a bit of weed. That stupidity came in. And that curiosity, like, wow, what's this? Here's the next thing. Mm -hmm. And um, there started a a ten uh, nearly eleven year path of heroin addiction because it took me uh, probably less than two months to be smoking heroin every single day, and then very quickly, whilst that took five years of smoking cannabis, taking amphetamines, and and doing all of those things, within the space of a short few weeks, I tried it once, I vomited. I itched my skin till I had friction burns everywhere. Mm -hmm. I woke up the next day and I didn't do it for another week. I thought nothing of it. And then I did it the weekend after. But within the space of a few short weeks, no more than two months, I was smoking heroin every day. Within the space of six months, I started stealing things out of the house. I lost my job. I lost weight. And, and, and then the true chaos started. Mm -hmm. True, true, absolute chaos. I lost all control in every respect imaginable um and then it was 10 years of i went to prison i was homeless 
I stole, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of pounds off my father. Um, I had my mum and dad both in tears on so many occasions. I overdosed when I was 20 years old and I, I remember waking up and I had um, cannulas all inside of me. I was on this bed. I can't really remember anything. All I know is that my dad was on the end of the bed with his head in his arms like that crying. That was the first time I'd seen my dad crying. I'd been resuscitated. I'd died. And the uh, paramedics brought me back to life. And you know what? I remember saying that. I remember saying, I promise Dad I'll never do this again. I'm very sorry. And the next day I was out using heroin again. It was completely against... I meant it in that time. I absolutely meant. I wasn't going to do it. I looked at my dad and I was like, whoa, what is going on? I've just been brought back to life. Just for the people that might not have had an addiction or just listening to learn about it, what was it that made you, do you think, go back from your point of view? To like go The next to day go after, back. after dying, being resuscitated, promising your dad, meaning it, and yeah. then the very next day you're doing it again. That's hard for mm. people to understand that are not yeah. addicts. Just wondering what your take on that is. Well, to answer that, let me rewind to an hour ago in the car when I says that the physical detox or the craving physically can be sorted out quickly, mm-hmm. but what's left is a, a mind that doesn't stop. And it was I had no mental defence. Mm. That to pick my cup up, first my mind has to say to do it. And to stop using heroin, first my mind has to tell me to stop going around the dealer's house and buying it and stop going to get some 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 paraphernalia from boots to inject myself my mind has to tell me to do stop doing these things before my body stops doing it and my point is my did answer you, is, is that there was no mental defense my mind wanted was going to get that heroin even if i was telling me not to do it i was it was going to happen there was, was there no that vague defense. sense is there a vague sense of this ain't right or was that 100 percent, 100 percent. but it wasn't enough yeah. it wasn't enough um and that was it. That was that was ten years. I started smoking crack, but ultimately heroin was the uh, heroin was the was the main thing that dominated every aspect of my life. Every waking moment, heroin, mm. taking heroin or, or or getting the means to take heroin dominated every aspect of my life until I, I mean I was very very fortunate that my substance misuse worker. And then I, I again important to say that I did get put on methadone. Uh, within a year of taking it, and I spent ten years on methadone as well. Mm-hmm. Um, important. So these are my real teeth as well. I'm quite lucky. <laughs> ten years on methadone. A lot of people, it rots them. Did you find it helped you at all? Um, well, yes and no. It helped me to not be in agony in the morning. Um, but in terms of, did I stop using heroin? No, never once. And I never met another person that did. No. Temporarily, they might have done. And when I say temporarily, I mean a week or two. And their, 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 their feeling good about themselves and telling everybody, oh, I haven't used for two weeks now, I'm just on my methadone, everything's great. It, it, was, it was as fleeting as their, you know, their, their telling you was their gap between not using heroin and starting again. I just never encountered anybody. Did you any have plans of stopping though? Was that in your mind that this was a path to stopping or? I think if I'm honest, I've never been asked that question. But now looking back, 
stopping was something incomprehensible to me. Mm. I just I couldn't imagine life now with not taking an opiate of some so kind. It's almost like that's who you become. That's who I become. The drug addict, and yeah. that's what drug addicts did was take methadone and yeah, do whatever else you were doing, and that was it. It wasn't a conscious thought. It wasn't a conscious thought, but it was like, this is how it is. Mm. And the idea of, of, of not taking methadone or, or heroin was just incomprehensible. The only other people that I had witnessed that had stopped taking it were six feet under the ground or were in prison. And even when they was in prison, to my knowledge, they were still able to get it. <laughs> mm. But that's it. Mm. It was not a known thing. So and as the years went on, I was quite lucky that I got funding from Ad Action, I was in Lincolnshire at the time where I live, and it was Ad Action. I think in Norfolk we have, um, is it Turning Point? Um, I'm a bit out of all those circles change, now. Change, go live. Yeah, change, go live. It, it different. It varies from region to region, mm. doesn't it? And um, I got funding to then go into Leicester's treatment centre, East Coast Recovery, where, where, where I was kind of. It was a lot, it was a, quite a bit of a process up to a year, as I recall, in treatment, where yeah, my that's journey where you could to recovery. You could get long term sort of treatment. Then. Yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that's, you know, after hearing Kelly's story last week, and if you've not listened to that, guys, on the podcast, please do go check that one out because it's an amazing story. But she was back and forth, and she six, seven rehabs. Took her a very long time, um, just to kind of get settled and get kind of started on that path. How how was it for you? When did you decide that you needed that help? When did you contact this this place, or, or was there an intervention? Like how you know how did you get into the centre? Well, my um my my substance misuse worker, I was with her for a number of years, and I think what it here's what it was, I was on such an amount of methadone they wouldn't put it up anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I got to a point. I think it was one hundred and thirty mils a day. That they wouldn't put it up anymore. And as with a lot of these organisations in the public sector, every two years or whatever it was back then, they would kind of change things a bit. They'd have a reshuffle and say, we need to do this or we need to do that. Um, and they said, you can't carry on using and giving us a positive test every time that you come here once a week and still be taking the methadone. We need to see some effort. And we had a conversation about going to treatment. And I jumped on it. I was I was open to it. I know I've, I've met some people over the years and in treatment. They said, no way, I'm not going to rehab. But there was something in me that I, I wanted it. I was very, very ill Because that, that was mentally. very much about abstinence as well. It wasn't like we're going to... I didn't know that at the time, you Lester. I didn't? No. <laughs> at, when, when I was in Lincolnshire abstinence was something if you had asked me what it meant I said I don't know what that means you'd have to give me a dictionary I wouldn't even know what it meant yeah. um, I think it was I think things were that bad not just externally but within myself emotionally and psychologically things were that bad it was just like I don't know just take me out of this situation because I just can't I can't do this anymore it, it was the big book calls it pitiful incomprehensible demoralisation and it was that bad. Sums it up. Yeah. Um, so I was just open to anything. And then fortunately they said... And and to be honest, I mean, my, my dad dropped me off there and I had a bag of clothes. And uh, 
I was quite happy to give my mum and dad a break. Because deep down within that chronic addiction, there's still an idea of like, oh my God, look at my mum and dad, look what I'm doing, look at my sisters, you know. There was still that deep down. There is a bit of a human left in there amidst all of that chaos. And then over the space of a week, I was introduced to the steps in your treatment centre, which is very much an abstinence-based treatment approach. Yeah, I think we take you off the methadone instantly uh, and bring, onto bring you onto Subutex. The reason mm. for that is, as you might have, we've, we've realised with the methadone, it kind of dumbs you down. Mm. But with the Subutex, your brain starts to work a bit better again. It becomes clearer. Yeah. So we find De- definitely. Yeah. I remember that. It seems a lot more cleaner. Yeah. We, we want your brain to start picking up again, and mm. some of the medications prevent that mm. from happening. So it can actually hold you in a place where you're not even able to recover on certain substances. Do you know what? This sounds a bit extreme, right? But I actually think it's not extreme. It's a good representation or a good mirror reflection about how chronically addictive methadone is on lord of the rings where you see gollum my precious it reminds me of that Mm. and that's what it is that clinging to that methadone waking up in the morning it's that kind of relationship if we're going to use hollywood imagery to kind of capture the nature of what's going on inside of a heroin and a methadone addict I think, I it's, think it's good. I think it's because of the fear of the detox. Mm. See, when I started out, it, it was proper difficult to get someone off of heroin. Mm. But I think as time went on and the processes, realising that if you put someone in rehab, you give them a lot of mental support, a lot mm. of emotional support, plus you put them on better medications that are easier for them uh, to come off. And so we found the people that didn't struggle, the people that really wanted to change, mm. a lot of them would say, that's the best detox i ever had some yeah. people struggled a little bit yeah but it wasn't anything like it was with people like you know <laughs> no really getting sick really uncomfortable and and so i think that's improved greatly yeah. over the years even even now in fact funnily enough i say to my wife in the very odd time that we talk about this because my again my wife she's not uh, in recovery she's not a, i think we spoke about it on the way here she's what we would say is normal um that I kind of, in some way, it's, it's such a far distant memory, but I do remember that the detox was horrific. I still say that now. However, of course it was necessary, but being in the environment hold you, all the I time, think, I, think I could the, not have done it. Let's just use that. So I think even com- in hospital, if people go in hospital, it's yes. not a recovery environment. It's in that recovery environment. I think that's the real big difference yes, a real it, game holds, changer. it can hold yeah because they know you, you get all the other people helping you supporting you encouraging yeah. you mm. and caring about you yeah not they don't do that in hospital I just think this extra recovery element mm. is the real game changer because as I remember probably 80% of the staff were in recovery mm. and there was um, there was certainly a, a handful of them um, of what I can remember there was Sonia, and there was uh, there was a couple of others. Um, won't mention their names. There was a couple of others that were of the addiction that I was of, and that was heroin addiction. Mm. And having spoken to them, I knew that they I knew they had been where I had been. Mm. But they were coming to work, looking all smart and helping with the washing up and doing Sunday roast, mm. attending to work. And there was just like it ain't gonna last long, you know. And I found it a bit annoying, patronising at the time. But I can kind of see that. 
it was perfect what they did because you, you don't want pampering to 24 hours a day i don't think it does anybody good any any good but the environment and the people held me there was always a goal i could visually see that i was mm-hmm. going to be at next week next month and then wow six months down the line straight, I could be straight like into in. groups straight yeah. into groups getting to the center getting yourself out of bed getting washed mm. there's no like lying in bed just experiencing no, no. the clock but you were just telling us, um, Anthony, about your time at, at ECR and, and your time detoxing and how difficult that was. Um, but you had the right people around you setting a good example, people who had trodden that path before you. Um, so I want to move on a little bit now into what you did after uh, after ECR. Um, and maybe we can, you know, we can hark back to, to your times there uh, if necessary. But you've done a lot for other people since then. You know, you've, you've done your county line stuff. You've worked with young people. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of that story. You know, um, you mentioned as soon as you, you kind of found your recovery, you went straight into work uh, and you've had a really strong work ethic ever since. Mm. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy. I do remember um, doing some some voluntary work um, when I was in my, I think it was third stage treatment that that was then introduced um, for the development of people that needed development, and I remember doing some some work then. Um, but in terms of going out into the big wide world and and doing this myself, what I knew is was, I mean I was twenty eight years old then, twenty nine. What I knew was I didn't want to go back working in the most in the most horrific job the only job I ever knew was working in the poultry industry and the only reason that that happened is because I could ring somebody up and start work in the morning and get instant cash within about 20 hours mm-hmm. the only other reason I did it and I could get sacked and call him up the day after and start the day after that's the only other reason I had that <laughs> kind of work ever um, I knew I didn't want to go back to anything like that I didn't want to go off and do a physical job um, I wanted to use my brain a bit and I think having the experience of spending nearly a year around um, people in ECR and learning about CBT and learning about, you know, a bit about the human condition or, or whatever it may be, all of the things that we talked about that and therapy and uh, self-development and all of those things, it really captured my attention. But I didn't have a reference for a property for, as a tenant because I'd never been in one. I didn't have a reference for work because I'd never been in work. I didn't have a library card. I didn't have a passport. I had nothing. So as we said on the on, in the journey here, there was a housing trust, a charity in Lowestoft, um, St. John's Housing Trust, I think it was called, if I remember rightly. Um, so anyway, I walked in there and had a chat with some of the guys in the office there, briefed over my situation um, and... They, they said, we, we can't give you a paid job because um, you've got no experience, but we like your attitude, I think they said, words to that effect. Um, we'll look at doing voluntary work. Um, so I went through the process and did the application, did the DBS, and they was happy to say, we can see you're a changed man now, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I did seven months voluntary work before they said, right, you can, we'll, we'll offer you a job now. And I spent about a year there and... That was working in the homeless drop-in centre. 
And then from there, go on, mate. Sorry, I was going to say, were were those first seven months particularly difficult? Were you really focused in? No, if if I'm honest, they weren't difficult. And here's the reason why. I'd just come from this 11-year catastrophic life of heroin addiction Mm -hmm. and then spent, I think, six weeks I was struggling with with the clucking off methadone and thingy and not sleeping and stomach cramps. And then that soon passed and that was gone. And then I spent, you know, seven or eight months and I was actually buzzing from life. I was like, oh my God, I feel human again. I'm eating really well. I'm showering every day. Well, and we had like, you'd have to work as well and and do voluntary stuff. So we did a lot of back to work things for people just so people know. It's not just sort of Mm. clucking off drugs. No, yeah, there was a whole, that was just, that was just the initiation. There's a lot of education Mm. and work opportunities. And so, you know, you'd been, pretty much doing stuff up until mm. leaving there's no sitting around mm, okay yeah so you're sort of a bit more work ready anyway yeah. weren't you yeah there was no sitting around at all and, and, and <laughs> only in groups only only in groups yeah and even that was still development yeah yeah all, all development um but there was no sitting around at all and i wanted it like that as well it wasn't like oh this is too much i wanted it like that because you know i, I felt human again you know, I'd f- I felt really good. I felt healthy, energetic. My mind was clear. I was loving doing the recovery stuff. Yeah, part um, of a fellowship of friends and people. Yeah, it talks about in the bond. in the book, doesn't it, that we found a new camaraderie. There was a joy amongst us, mm. um, and that was certainly the case. So it wasn't difficult. If anything, I was just, um, I was just very zestful for life. So I didn't really find it that difficult. We call it being empowered. That's the, that's the purpose of our kind of recovery. Mm. It empowers the person's brain to fire up so their natural desires kick in, mm. their aspirations rise, and then they do what Anthony did. They go and start getting on with life and finding their own jobs because they can now because they're not hindered by a, a drug. Got this new a new ability, this new yeah, power. It's about really about to, empowering people. want to go make the most of it and yeah, test, yeah, well, test yeah, out your new yeah. superpower yeah, for they, life. They're getting high on life. I did find, um, <clears throat> because the nature of the work that I was doing, I was working with vulnerable people um, in a homeless drop-in centre, and there was a lot of paperwork, as there is whenever you're working with vulnerable people, there's lots of paperwork involved. Mm. Um, and the academic side of it, you know, um, it's something I learned because I was uneducated. I left school when I was 14 and went to work on a farm. I didn't have a single GCSE. Um, so that that side, but again, I just enjoyed learning. I just seemed to enjoy everything. You know, I remember walking down the beach most days and going back to whatever stage uh, environment I was in. It, it was a third stage environment. I think I had my own flat on Bethel Street, was it? Oh, yeah, Bethel, Bethel Street, Street. Coffee yeah. Shop. I was in one of those for, for some time. Um, and I just had a zest for life. So I didn't find it that difficult. If anything, I found it more exciting. Mm-hmm. I could see a future... And the future was bright, in the words of Orange. <laughs> um, so I didn't really find it that difficult, yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, I, I I soon thought, you know what, I want to do something else, because it was quite a... I don't know, it, it, the environment, I soon became, I changed, I was changing at a rapid pace, um, in some senses. In the environment, there was a lot of elderly people using this homeless drop-in centre. I wanted something new, and I saw this this job for supporting a young man that had a brain injury, um, and it was also in Lower Stoft, and, and the money was quite good. And it was a different nature of work, 
Anyway, I went up for the interview and I got the job, despite my DBS. And do you know what I found is that the world can be quite forgiving if you've got the right attitude and somebody could see that what they're seeing on paper is not what they're seeing now. They're willing to give you a chance. And that was quite refreshing to me, actually, because mm. I thought, you know, with 17 criminal offences or something, I thought, well, I ain't really got a lot of hope. But that's, that wasn't true. Mm. That wasn't true. That's inspiring. Mm. In fact, not once has it stopped me. And I went on to become... I worked in higher education for seven years and did a couple of years teaching and um, I worked in a mental health institute and worked for homeless uh, homeless hostels in Norwich, where I live now. And never once has my criminal history been an issue. So I think I found that quite refreshing that the world is quite forgiven, certainly in this country anyway. Mm. Yeah, that goes against a lot of the preconceptions, doesn't it? You kind of mm. think, well, you know, if I've got this criminal record or, or, or you know, I've got these marks against my name, then it's hopeless. I might as well give up now. Mm. Um, but you're living proof that that's not the case. And mm. as long as your attitude's right, you know, you, you, you alter your attitude, you can alter that. Well, I think it all comes down to risk assessment. So it depends on the sort of level of risk. Of, of course, that's, yes. That's the thing. Some people that would be a problem for them if they've got a lot of factors about their... Yeah, life that makes them a higher risk. You obviously on a risk assessment didn't look too high a risk. No, and and to 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 be more accurate, what was on my uh, uh, my DBS was clearly uh, just a result of being in chronic addiction. Mm-hmm. So, for example, this is the extreme, but you know, uh, child molestering or sneaking you know five kilograms of cocaine from peru or you know murdering somebody 18 years ago those kind of things are not on my dbs clearly <laughs> and if they were i wouldn't have gotten the jobs that i'd got in for good reason yeah mm-hmm. but it was like it was mental health problems yeah uh, it's mm. about the risk assessment a risk, risk assessment to be yes. fair to the yeah. people that have got high risk yeah so um so that was yeah i think it was more of like my my view upon it, looking at it and seeing the seventeen. But well, you're also a young guy there. that really did show a lot of interest, wanted to learn, wanted to get on and mm. see you know, people want to give you a chance. Yeah. And yeah. and again, they know you're bringing a lot mm. to the table when you've had that sort of experience. You know, in our sort of job having a criminal record is a it's, it's a plus. It's, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it seems that we've got a bit of first-hand experience yeah. when somebody walks in the door. Especially if you've overcome it and you've mm. got that lived experience, which is becoming more of a thing, I think. Yeah. The people are putting a lot more value on lived experience, not just qualification. Well, that's interesting because I do remember the amount of... Um, the amount of even evening conversations where the therapy and the work and the washing up and all of the things to keep us busy and develop in recovery and ECR, with all sat around, the amount of conversations that were had, like, I can't believe it when I look around, all of these people were in addiction, you know. Not all of them, I don't think it was a, a, a rule that you had to be, mm. but a lot of people were in recovery themselves, was this was revolutionary. Because like I said 20 minutes ago, the only people that I knew that got free from drugs... It's because they were six feet under the ground or in prison. And if they was in prison, they was probably still using anyway. Yeah. It just didn't happen. See, that's so one of the important things about, and about the 12-step fellowships like Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous. So if you go in them rooms, you're going to find 20, 40 people that have 
uh, overcome addiction, mm. which a lot of people, again, don't even know that's possible, which is why we say recovery is possible. Yeah, especially in smaller towns where I come from. Yeah, I in cities now yeah. I can compare the two. Yeah. In cities, it's a it's a bit more in addicts' minds that if they want to NA's down the road, but a lot of them choose not to do it and some of them choose mm. to do it. But in a small town where I come from, no, I'd never even heard of these things. No, no, I never did. Till I, till I come into recovery. Never known anyone giving up drinking. In actual fact, it was a weird thing. If weird you didn't drink, you were a bit strange. Mm. Or, you, you know, where I grew up, if you said to someone I didn't drink, you're, they said, what, you're on antibiotics? They thought you had VD. It was kind of like the only reason to not drink. Antibiotics. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sorry, to answer your to, to answer your question, I didn't really find it that difficult um, Yeah, in, at, at that stage. No. Okay, well, yeah, that is really interesting to know, and I hope that gives a lot of people hope, though, as well. Um, you mentioned that you worked with a lot of young people as well mm. after that so you know you kind of did your stint at the homeless shelter and then and then you helped the young man with his with his issues and then went on to do some work with county lines but also working in um uh, in one of the colleges in town right mm. um, yes. and that sounds quite interesting because something that you mentioned to me earlier which i think would be great to unpack is this idea of um mental health diagnosis uh, and how a lot of these diagnoses result in prescribed medicines mm. um, which is a whole another issue of addiction in itself so with your first-hand experience of that i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the problems that that you perceive there with with these prescriptions and particularly with the diagnosis and the idea that these are kind of band-aids that they're, they're not really discussing and dealing with the root causes of the issues mm. but instead they're just kind of alleviating some of the effects and, mm. and again potentially causing greater harm down the line mm. well i mean it's interesting i think it's important to say this and i said before we started the podcast that i've never met anyone with bad intentions mm -hmm. as of yet in 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 my jobs that i've had over the years i've never gone into a job and sat down with somebody in in, in an office and they're like, right, I really want to screw up this patient's life. <laughs> it's not yeah. like that. It's like, how can we help these people? Yeah. Um, and I think it comes down to that word empowering. That I won't mention where I work just because I've got, I might have continued relationships with them. And as I said on the way here, that I don't really need to because the approach that I was participating in and, and saw is the general approach of the UK as a whole in treating mental health or substance misuse. It's a generalised approach, mm. unless you go to the private sector in a place like Leicester's and 12-step orientated, then it's quite a different approach. But I soon became aware, and I was I soon became aware that working in homeless hostels was a key thing. As I said, the, the majority of my working life, I worked in higher education i had two jobs and i also worked because i worked in education i only worked nine months of the year so i had three months of the year um where i wasn't working so i had a second job just to bring in an extra income as my wife did we both worked in the two same jobs we had four jobs between us um and it was a fantastic lifestyle but i soon became aware that there was a continued approach to 
even say for instance, the amount of times I've got anxiety because I've got an interview, I'm not sure I can do this. And then the general approach was, well, maybe you should go back to your doctor and see if you can get your um, medication increased or maybe you need it changing. Well, let's have a look at this anxiety, <laughs> you know. And then I've got depression, and I'm not even exaggerating. This, this I try to keep this in reality, not minimise or, or maximise. I try to keep it in reality. Now, I'm going to make up a hypothetical person, but hopefully captures the reality of my experience. That there would be an overweight um, young person, 18 years old, that stayed awake all night on an Xbox, smoked weed, drank Red Bull, was sleeping around, um, eating one pot noodle a day. Um, when they got paid, they would go out and eat McDonald's. How hypothetical is that? This is reality. <laughs> <laughs> this is reality <laughs> and then they're saying I'm depressed and over the years it's not funny but it's the reality of it <laughs> well, you're kind of meant to be yeah. depressed aren't you? that's a healthy yeah. emotion if you're living that lifestyle but on this side of the fence there was no discussion of we need to tell them to stop living this lifestyle mm. you can't do that because you might hurt their feelings what we need to do is look yeah, he's got a, his doctorate down the road give him a he studied for seven years you need to go in and he'll give you more medication wow how and there was no discussion. How old were the kids? That was genuine kids. Um, in, in this context, and I won't name the organisation. <coughs> right. um, no, I think you're right. I think that's a general... It's a general approach. Around the country, yeah. it's not... Um, 16 to 24 in, in this, where I was working in mm. these hostels. So what was it? What was the, they were hoping... What would, what would be the uh, outcome they were hoping for by... I guess they were... Uh, I don't even know what to say, really. They were... Um, Supporting his lifestyle, yes. their lifestyle. Supporting the lifestyle, and you know what? I just it was their up, choice. It was it was their choice, and it was kind of like I was I was looking last night. I, I spent twenty minutes just having a few look at things ready for this, and the harm reduction yeah. initiative strategy, and it, you could almost say that the same approach is a cop out approach. It's just one just to keep everything relatively quiet and relatively good. You know, but without trying to progress, um, and you could say it was that it was just harm reduction. So, what would have been the hope then? What would have been the best outcome that they would be expecting that that person would, once they got everything they want, yeah, that they would just start all of a sudden. I'm just going to get straight to the point. And you know what? There was no hope other than this. Make sure they're not calling the paramedics once a week. Because they're overdosing, because that's not looking good on paper. Try and make sure that they have a successful move on, because that was these, important. These were conversations, or were these just? Was just no, the, but that was the general feel. That's what. And it take. Yeah. I didn't pick up on this after three months of working there. It was after years of working there yeah. that the cracks start to appear, and maybe that's just because of my awareness, and I was empowered when I was on the other side of the fence. To completely transform my life and my response to life. So all, all I saw was in a legal and moderated and trying to be safe way, we was just making things worse. If that made sense. Yeah. In a legal, safe, well, enabling, moderated enabling way. Well, does. It just allows enabling. the person to um, continue in their ways. But... But with the tools or methods that you're given, that you're restricted to 
to use in and and if that was the outcome of the people that was not self motivated it's almost like an institutionalization i think yeah. that, you know people don't have to necessarily be in an institution they can be on benefits going to these organizations and it it kind of doesn't prepare them for the real world. It no. prepares them for that world, so mm. they tend to stay in that world. I think one of, this was probably <clears throat> one of the reasons where I started to think about things a bit differently from, say, my colleagues. Not all, and I'm quite lucky, really, because my wife saw it as I did as well, and other people, but they were certainly in the minority. That It got to a point where I became aware of it, and then it got to a point where I became a bit uncomfortable continuing it because it's I was aware of it, and I was just am I going to continue doing this even though I think it's wrong? I'm still getting paid and it's a good job because they were good jobs. Um, it got to a point where I wanted to do this. If that person that I, I hypothetically just made up came to the office, and and had a tear running down their eyes and said. Can you make me a doctor's appointment, please? I need to go get some more medication. I was at the point where I wanted to say this. Crap. Nonsense. I think you need to book up your ideas. Get down. Come down in the morning. Eat healthily. Stop playing your Xbox. Stop smoking weed. Stop sleeping around. Stop doing all of these things. I think you're talking out your ass. I am then professionally bound not to say well, that because I might legally, hurt their feelings legally, but yeah. I think that's where the point of progression yeah. is and that's where professionally I'm stopped mm -hmm. you could get, four, I think that's you could where get it 14 is. years in prison for that that's where <laughs> and how, how long were your sessions with these people I mean it varied I, I haven't really got an answer to that because in in what we're talking about now in the, in the homeless hostels um it would just be shift work and we would have a point I'd have a caseload you would have appointed times with mm. them but but with the younger people sorry there was there was neither rhythm nor rhyme to it because their needs varied okay so sometimes I could be sat for three hours with one person mm. just going over the same old stuff and some people I never saw all they wanted was a roof over the head and a fry up on a Sunday morning you never saw them they just avoided me yeah. um, so there was neither rhythm nor rhyme to that and more, when I worked in children's homes that was very, very strange. Because I guess there must have been outcomes needed to be recorded that you'd have to record certain things to show that they're doing well. They must have had to done yeah. something to get. Yeah, there, there was, there was, there was outcomes. Um, and again, it varied. Some people come in and they come from a relatively good family, and I say relatively. And some people came in and and, and they were of the nature of mum and dad were drug addicts. I've been abused. I've lived on the streets. I have zero education and very, very difficult people to work with. Um, so the outcomes and their goals and their aims as a key worker and as a, as a client, as a stakeholder, would, would vary depending on the person. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times, so for the reason that I've just said, is because you can't tell them the truth because it might hurt their feelings. The outcomes were never achieved. Did other, So how did you get the, uh, the results to get the funding? Manipulating paperwork. Really? To make sure funding come in. Do you think everyone was... I saw that even... Again, I'm not going to mention the establishment, no. but I've even seen it in education. Well, you, you have to... Um, I, think I always found when I worked in certain projects... See, my standard was taxpayers, because I knew that was possible, like yourself. Mm. 
So I knew that's possible because I believe recovery is possible to get people back paying tax and getting on with what we consider a, a normal life. But some of the projects that I work in that didn't understand how to empower people, they become more enabling, so they would reduce the standards to, you know, uh, giving them a home, getting them sort of balanced. Again, it's only in like a period of time. I see it on LinkedIn this morning that <clears throat> they got a guy and they're really bigging him up because he's stopped drinking and he's at a family event and and how wonderful it is because he's been sober for a few months <laughs> and i'm like that's not really a sign of success a few months it's good obviously yeah. you don't want to undermine anyone but recovery is uh you know you, you kind of got in to get into the to the years to start seeing this person's actually stable they're not going to revert back yeah. but in a few months i mean the first year that's the biggest relapse period so sort of <clears throat> you know when you get people coming into rehab they're obviously very sick because they're poisoning themselves so when you stop and poison themselves and then feed them uh start they start getting good night's sleep and they start relaxing they start looking healthy very quickly and then yeah, the family, that. yeah, and the yeah. families are like, "Oh, it's wonderful," but it's really a false, yeah, flag. You're just seeing the physical get better. You're just that's see, the quickest yeah, yeah, and yeah, easiest thing. Anyone, look, we can get everyone off drugs in this country in two weeks, hundred percent, but you ain't going to keep them off. Mm. So, physical uh, recovery and mental and emotional recovery, just not the same thing, and and the evidence is more in. You know, I like Kelly, who, like her mum, I think I use her as an example, that she did a podcast for us a few years ago, and she said, I knew Kelly was getting better, not because she looked well, because I've been through that before. I knew something had changed about Kelly when we went in a coffee shop, and we both ordered a cup of coffee, we both ordered a cake, and Kelly paid. She said, right then, I knew something had changed. <laughs> very it's, small and subtle but profound but, but because yeah. again the mum knew that it's usually she was constantly taking and, and a drain you know when your mind becomes empowered you start contributing back in that's mm. the whole evidence that you'll stop being so selfish not that you're not drinking again I think it's a big problem even in the 12 step fellowships they think they're doing well because they're not drinking or taking drugs anymore yet they're carrying on the damage in their families because they're incredibly selfish mm. self-centered self-seeking people so it's a different kind of evidence of course it's good they stop using yeah. but from the from what i believe that that's not really great evidence that they're that they're being very successful in their life because they're not functioning and mm. it's like them kids you know they they might, even if they're on the street, they get them off the street and put them in a home. So they're like, oh, well, that looks good. We can tick a box. Well, and it is, it's not only a tick in a box. That's ready <coughs> for the end of March when they have the awards at um, wherever in, in Norwich. I can't remember the name of the place on Bank Plain. There's a place there. Mm. We used to have the awards there and they could get up on stage and do their photo shoots for the EDP mm. and hold up their certificates. And this is their success story. And they do huge success story. But... So I've got four the, of them the, awards. The, the rate of progression... <laughs> and I want to throw them in the bin. Mm. I, I, we just moved and I just found I got four awards from the local authorities. And I, I was telling my wife, I want to throw these in the bin. 
because I don't think they mean anything to me. So there's sort of short-term wins, aren't they, that don't really tackle the, the bigger problem. I think the they, reason that they give them is wrong. It's not yeah. that I didn't deserve them. I think I did deserve the awards my, and my staff and my organisation. I think we definitely deserved them, but I think the reason we were giving them was wrong. It was wrong, yeah. And, and, and I don't like that, because again, it's, society's got this bit of a dark side yeah. to... Again, if somebody said to me, well, what would you do to change everything? I'd say that. First of all, tell every all the organisations you're going to get your funding for the next five years. All we want is accurate. What really surprised me, and this was this 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 really showed me how when organisations need funding, why this happens. That when I went to work in education, I was leaving. At, at the core, I was leaving away treating anxiety, depression, substance misuse and homelessness, just to name a few. I was going into a completely different context. People wanted education. So the uh, substance misuse, anxiety and depression were just something that was uh, dealt with on the side. But the main reason of my job purpose and the place of higher education was for education. So it was a different nature. But And I didn't notice this within a year or even two years, but after three four years i started you started to notice things as with patterns don't you and as time goes on you become a bit more aware of how things work that in june we would get next year's students coming in and depending on where i was working at the time um we would meet our students in june and whether they was coming from another college because there was misbehaving or whether they was coming from a school because they was going to be 16 when they was entering college, would vary. But we would get uh, pass-on papers, we would get pass-on grades, we'd get a portfolio of this person and where, we, where they were academically. And they would say, right, they've got a C in this, a D in this, they've got an F in that, you know, major work needed, blah, 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 you get the picture. So, okay, right, so this is June, we're going to have the summer holidays, they're going to start in September, 4th, 5th, 6th of September. And now we've got a starting point that meets where they are in a way that we can progress in a an achievable manner. But what we would notice is that they would come in June, July for the assessment, we'd have the summer holidays, we'll come back in September, all raring to go, we just had six weeks off for the summer holidays. And by the end of October, November, we'd be like, man, half of these people are struggling, they're not at these grades. And then we would report that to to management and to leaders and they'll be like right okay yeah just just kind of do your best and just try and you know things can't be changed at that point you can't but you've got really little scope to change things because really the solution would be to go back and get to go back foundation to go back yeah and start them at a lower foundation but that changes paperwork which brings in funding yeah and then what we would see as we got back round to april may june and then we start and, and assessments or some of them were doing you know I even worked in business studies um, and, and cooking and stuff like that where people were doing degrees even maths and engineering um, not tutoring I was a learning support practitioner was they were falling behind so what we would do is no one and again it falls into this I never met anyone with bad intentions I never met anyone that all went out to tell f- a, a lie but you trying would to do, amplify, to, right amplify yeah. to get the best outcome. To get the best outcome, you, you <clears> could <throat> see how things were. They would lower the standard, 
So they're struggling with meet the standards so you could tick the box and make sure that the funding come in. And mm. you see the cycle like, going through. But they're through. doing that like it's a good thing to try and help the people, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't really help. still leaves keeps, them quite yeah. unprepared. It just, it's going to make them struggle for where they go to next yeah. next year. Because they they're thinking they're up here, but they're not. They're down here. So they yeah. set the work up here and then they struggle. And then the next person follows the cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the problem when you rely on funding and you're under pressure to meet certain... Uh, statistics yeah that would be my conclusion that's what I say my if I was in charge it would be like you get your funding for five years just give us accurate statistics so we can and then you've got something to work on it's like there's an incentive for manipulation but there's no incentive for the honest results Mm. no because it's not good I think that's the thing a lot of it it's like it's just not the, the truth we always say this do you want the truth or something beautiful so the truth it kind of does hurt, yeah. you know, especially with a lot of people. It's like in, in you know, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit, uh, I'm, I say like, like I'm famous, not a lot of people know it, <laughs> but <laughs> for being straight talking that people say things like, oh, I feel really guilty or it's like, you are, mate, you are guilty. Oh, I feel like I'm a really bad mother. Yeah, you are. You're, you're on error and you're not really turning up. You are, you're not a good mother. Because if you keep telling them they are good, or what they're doing doesn't... See, a lot of them emotions I've learned, feeling guilty, it's a very healthy emotion. Being depressed, a lot of people say, I've got depression. I'm like, I doubt it. I'm no doubt you're depressed. But I'd be depressed if I was living like you. That's a very healthy emotion. All them antidepressants are doing is giving you painkillers so you can carry on causing yourself harm. It's not an accurate assessment of what's actually you're not they're not teaching you to read the reality right and and, and again one thing i've learned sort of um physically spiritually emotionally you know on every level of life i can't think of anything that, that this rule doesn't apply you cannot change what you don't accept See, one of the greatest um, words we use in recovery is acceptance. Now, a lot of people, because they're powerless, the powerless people, when you say you have to accept, they think you've got to put up with it because that's a powerless... A lot of words are like that. You have a powerless interpretation, then you have a powerful interpretation. The powerful interpretation is acceptance means you accept the situation as it is by the facts, and then you relate correctly to it and a lot of the time if you need to change then you need to change it's in like the serenity prayer is god grant me the serenity the peace of mind to accept the things i cannot change now that 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 can be difficult it's things that we cannot change i've struggled with that because i'm got more of a personality that likes to change things so it's god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change but then i need courage to change the things i can and so doing good infantry really helps me to understand, look, what can I change, what can't I change? And if you're not telling people, look, mate, you need to take, it's your ability to respond is the problem. And unless you're, if you want to keep blaming everybody else or keep expecting everyone to feed you because you're not able to feed yourself and they're happy to do that, well, you're never going to change because you need to accept you're a child. You're a, you're a man boy, or or, or man boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of them. 
They're, they're, they're grown men, but they're really like 11 years old, the way they behave, their, their education, their ability. And it's like, if you're not willing to accept that, then you're not going to go and do anything to change. So they sit in these organisations where there usually is a lot of support and help for them, but they don't think they need it or they don't understand enough. Mate, you need to turn up. Mm. And, 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 and go through the challenges that you're going to have to go through so you can develop. And we find in good recovery, it kind of sets that intention for people like, like yourself. It's like, look, there's going to be challenges, but you've got to get on the path and you will grow, you will develop, and you will mature. And as a result of that, your responses are improved and you'll make better choices and you'll get better outcomes for yourself. Not that we don't all depend on each other and society to a degree, but I think society is always trying to set up these codependent relationships where, where I have to depend on them. I'm a staunch conservative. I like small government. I don't want to depend on the government. They're not very dependable, are they? <laughs> I, I kind of like uh, interdependent, where I'm um, equipped in my own right and I, and I like that being around other people that we can then come together and, and work together rather than having all these grown people that are like children because they're still dependents. That's interesting because looking back to, and again, if you can find anybody that doesn't fall into this, um, then, then I'll, I'll be amazed. But anybody that's in chronic <clears throat> addiction... Um, is is by the nature of it dependable i was dependable 100 percent on people around me um my mum and dad they enabled me um for many many years and i was completely dependable i was i was had zero independence um and that in itself is like a sickness and looking back and now comparing to being quite an independent person that itself is like a sickness, that dependence. Mm. Because when you're in the nature, when you're in the company of another person, there's always an agenda subconsciously. Mm. And I find that you would manipulate the way that you talk and go into that emotional pulling kind of talking because you, there's, a, there's an agenda, there's something that I want. Mm-hmm. That, is, that, is, that in itself is like a sickness. Yeah. So it, fall, it falls into that empowering. I'd say in America, they, have, they celebrate Independence Day. Do you know that independence from us? From, yes. <laughs> from <laughs> England. <laughs> England's just heavily dependent, it, yeah. it seems. When and you go to America, is a they've probably gone a little bit too far with the independence because there's a there's not so much help when you are struggling, but but have, they haven't got such a heavy um benefit system that we have, which again it does a lot of good but it does a lot of harm. It's just identifying the difference in the people again yeah. i like that serenity prayer it's being able to identify what needs to change and um, you know what i need to accept but i think addiction what i've learned for all my years in addiction treatment it's all about dependency yeah. not not just chemical dependency it's about people and relationship dependency and how unhealthy they can get and if if you've got unhealthy dependencies on whatever it's going to cause you harm we was talking on the way here and uh, I think at one point I said that um, when, when, when I was in the mainstream working in, in those jobs that I've had over the years that you could talk about the nature of why somebody is 
treating themselves in this self-sabotage abusive way of, of taking these drugs staying awake all night and or doing whatever it is this destructive addictive lifestyle that if i was speaking to managers or people in the nhs they would get to a point where i would have to say i can't talk any further about what we're talking about the nature of this problem without throwing in a word like spirituality mm-hmm. and at that point there's a cut off mm-hmm. you, you can't people engage with most of these people any further yeah. from that point because they don't want to go into that territory mm-hmm. but now as now as we've been talking i do believe that for me it was a spiritual thing yeah. uh, if i was gonna revert back to a medicine based approach or a therapeutic based approach even though i think therapeutic therapy certainly has its place that um there's that point where i think a spiritual program and the empowering of that and a certain level of um dependency is broken because of this new spiritual path yeah because it talks about developing and finding the power within yourself mm. which again is what what i think we are which talking what you want about. isn't it yeah, yeah. When people no, I think leave, once, once you, people you, find you don't need no, well, you not only healthy. We all need each other, and there is healthy dependencies because you get your interdependency. But we all need to depend on each other at different times in our life. But when people are empowered, they find that power in themselves. Mm. But I think you have to reach a certain level of enlightenment or consciousness before that power actually becomes something that you discover. And I think if you're not being shown that, I think in our environment. That's one of the things we say, look, we've got this spiritual element, there's, this power needs to be activated in you, but there's also a very material and physical development also needs to occur to allow them to start working working together. And uh, But I think that's very much the power, that higher power that we're talking about. It doesn't have to be God, mm. but we realise that in the human brain, when you sort of scan the brain, there's a lot of energy running through it, and then people you're talking about that are sort of stuck in that lower mind. If you scan their brains, there's not much activity, which is why there's not much activity yeah. in their life. They they and they're just they're living in this state of not enough activity. So yeah. they're you know like not having to go at homeless people or or people that are dependent, but they're giving less. They're the people that are expecting to take the most because they've not got a lot of activity. But it, so you want to increase the activity in their in their brain. Now they haven't got it, so really it does fall on the rest of us that that do have that to try and get around them or find ways of getting around them to increase their desire to have more activity in their life. Hopefully, so they can instead of being a deficit, they can start feeding themselves and contributing a lot more back than what they're taking. Yeah. It's kind of like the goal. It's what makes you successful, isn't it? That, yeah, and when I... So, when I said that we have to talk about, beyond the discussion that we've just had about the medicinal approach, the therapeutic approach, the um, those things, and I have to talk about <clears throat> my experience about um, a spiritual path, and which initiated from the twelve steps about twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I think it was if I was to boil it down, it'd be this: that the spiritual path gave me enough empowerment within myself that I can go off and live my life without calling that action, without 
um, feeling the need to take two years off sick because I'm anxious, but to be a productive, maintaining, contributing member of society that can look after myself and I'm not going to abuse myself, um, those kind of things, and just get on in life with a certain degree of enjoyment, productivity and usefulness. And if you can do that, and then if you want to go above that and go and live on a mountain in India and, you know, hibernate for the rest of life, then fantastic. But it's not pay very productive. You, pay your tax. And pay your tax, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in, in the context of just yeah. trying to live a healthier lifestyle and come from a very addictive, non-useful lifestyle to the opposite. Mm. Well, and then, then get, also going on to then help others and having kids and having a wife yeah. and sharing your knowledge with the world and not just taking from people but mm. getting to that point where you actually have enough knowledge and, and the ability to give back a bit you know you've got that energy to do that mm. you know you've opened your mind enough that you can start sharing it with other people in a positive way yeah because interesting and if we was gonna measure what we would define as recovery or success which you, if you had a million people working in the field you'd probably get a million different views of success but I said the other day, I don't know if I was speaking to a friend, I don't know if I was speaking to Dan or yourself, I don't even know if I was speaking to my wife, but anyway, I said that, you know what, and I was speaking about my dad, and this is how it came, that 11 years I used heroin and crack, and I never paid taxes, and I just vacuumed the system, I contributed the least and took the most, um, and it's now been 11 years where I have worked. With, I've not been one single day unemployed, legally, officially unemployed. And I've always paid taxes. And I felt quite happy that I had now contributed and rebalanced the scales of karma, for lack of a better way of putting it. I actually felt mm. happy. And I think that's a good mindset, a good um, identification of good recovery. That I felt mm. happy that I contributed back yeah. and rebalanced the scales. And now I can go beyond that in a way that the scales are going to be in favour on my side. Mm -hmm. But in that sense, it's not in favour on my side, it's in favour of society's yeah. side. Yeah. Looking at it from Isn't a more yeah. selfless perspective. Mm. I think that's probably a, a, you know, a, a good approach. Yeah. Well, I think that's when you start realising that you're a sort of a small part of a bigger whole, mm. that you've got your place... If I feel that you know, once you start living with a purpose, like you feel like you have a purpose to be here, and you got some direction, then you just automatically have more of a fulfilling life a experience, life, yeah. and you know whatever your version of success is, it's achievable. And I think that then that obviously encourages people to go through the difficult periods which we do. I find it's sad that people. That they have a lot of difficulty but no real joy mm. and then i think that can life can then look very bleak and i propose that it's probably where the suicides start occurring and they just think ah oh, it's just too hard i mean i was like that at sort of 30 years old i thought i can't live like this it's too hard and i i was five years in recovery <clears throat> but something in my mind changed i got to i found a higher power Something that was bigger than me that, that gave my life more purpose and meaning, and uh, I think that's important to um, to find that power inside yourself. But if you haven't got that, I do think you need other people to show you the way, which mm -hmm. is what good recovery, them sort of you know good scout leaders, good 
you know, boys football club, good boxing, you know, all of them sort of unsung heroes that know that there's something more for them kids to aspire. I mean, I found that interesting with churches because when you look at the big old churches, the big old buildings and the cathedrals with the big old towers, and you go in them, they are inspiring, but, you know, there's people often would say things like, well, why did they build all them buildings when around them everyone was starving? Why didn't they give the money to the people? And I think it was for that reason that we're talking about. It's because even like the church, the pointy bit's called Aspire, isn't it? Something to aspire to. It was to, to aspire people mm. around, to think that there's something far more than what they've they've got to lift them up, to raise them up. Mm. And, and I kind of like that, that, that even knowing like your brain talks we do, where your brain opens, it kind of raises you up to a to a higher power in your own mind that, that, that gives you more functionality, which gives you more ability to do more things in your life. And, and, and to strive, to, to be inspired. Just, yeah, yeah, it's like being set free. Yeah. You know, like, it, like you were, you were set free. There, there was nothing really wrong with you underneath that addiction. Once that addiction was taken off here and your brain kicked in, you, you went off into the world and, and built yourself a life, which we mm. see multiple times. Mm. Once the brain gets set free, nature kicks in again, evolution kicks in, and then you start naturally wanting to uh, to develop and grow and follow your dreams, your ambitions. and But you have the capacity to do that. Mm. And, and I think that's the important thing. Addiction... And certain medications change away the capacity. Yeah, so yeah. you you end up not giving very much in a, in a very limited state, yeah. and you're stuck there. And I feel society can do that to people. And I think it's, it's not really bad. Limited state. I'll tell you, this is <clears throat> this is like again. I said at the start of the podcast. I don't want to labour my using too much because I think I think you have to always balance talking about the war stories, as they say in the meetings, um, to as to. As opposed to, right, this is what I've gained. This is my life now. This is the good that I feel, etc., etc. But I always remember this one little story, and I think it really captures how sad and zero capacity I had to think anywhere beyond this lifestyle. There was this fellow, right, and uh, he had a car accident with his brother, and he got £100,000, and he lived in a council house, he was at the age I was about 25, 26, 27. I was going around there for about three years and uh, he was selling heroin and I was scoring heroin from him at the time. And he got this £100,000 and I remember this house and because it, it, it captures just how sad life was. He had a dark red carpet, an orange wallpaper. He had a big TV with Sky and there was a huge hexagon wooden table and he had a big armchair that he always used to sit in. And he had Sky TV and he'd always, every single day, because he got all of this money for, for a good period of time because he sold as well so it balanced the money there was always a big pile of heroin there and he never went with that and I used to go around there and I used to make him cups of tea and I'd be able to get heroin on tick and do you know what my aspiration was? I wanted to be sat in that chair <laughs> that was as far as my aspiration got I was jealous of his lifestyle mm. mad it's mm. insane mm. now you've achieved sad. it <laughs> you have to send a picture in your front room <laughs> we even got the hexagon table just need to get the sky tv i'm gonna have a word with my boss for a pay rise <laughs> but and here's the thing as well talking about young people i was thinking about this last night 
the, and, and county lines is we live in, we live in the western western developed world and life is easy if we want it to be in terms of your immediate needs food shelter medicine you know we're not living in a third world country and i think that's caused a degree of laziness in people and took away people's strive to be able to um produce a life that's going to be you know um fruitful and satisfying and, and meet their immediate needs and beyond those immediate needs in the future and i saw in county lines it's like this identity thing with any anywhere as young as 11 years old going up to you know 16 17 year old and then we don't see them past that age because they're no longer a child and they won't fit into our service that within two days you could go and fit into a tribe yeah you could be initiated because you've carried ten thousand pounds worth of heroin from bristol to birmingham and that's your initiation done and then you could go get your office clothes which consisted of an armani tracksuit and then you could go get your office bag and get your hugo boss bag where you could put your phone and start to create your own little business network and within the space of a week you've created everything that takes five years to create if you was to go to education get a job and work your way up in a field and it was it was a huge insight into into county lines that it wasn't just about the money it was the whole profile lifestyle that came with that mm. yeah if people are sort of more satisfied they're a lot harder to groom yes you know, yeah when people put a deeper un- value on things yeah when people are unsatisfied or unloved or feel less than you know I found that myself is that the gangsters really loved them because they made me feel important, which I obviously didn't. Yeah. And they made me feel like I fitted in or somebody special, which again, I didn't get that from my school. So you notice that they were very... Susceptible to... You were to very abuse. drawn yeah. to them and, and to do what they wanted um, because it just made you feel good and obviously something that you're very much lacking. So I guess... Again, the environment again is a key thing, isn't it? And again, I think this maybe it's time for another podcast. We can have another talk about this. I think about this. I think society is making things super difficult for a lot of people. Like even saying in the education that they lowered it down. But again, I think that's a very real problem, isn't it? That something's breaking down at the beginning at the family, you know, level that we need to that them children that when they get to them sort of places in university they should be able to deal with what what's coming again i can only use my own experience that i didn't learn the fundamentals at school so i went through the whole of my school career i left at 15 Mm. with no exams because i didn't understand the fundamentals and that's because you know a lot of troubles at home and nobody was really focused on my education so it's like just piling it on piling it on piling it on i'm getting angrier and angrier and you've you've missed the mainstream where you fit in is the uh, is of all the little villains in the you drop out of the mainstream society where mm. you feel like you fit in. I didn't fit in the mainstream, and then I wasn't very good at being good, but I was good at being bad. It turns out because that was the endorsement that I was getting from the the older gangsters that were giving me the nourishment that I wasn't getting from the mainstream. And I remember for a period of time there, I had big chunks of change in my pocket. You know, we used to say I had a roll big enough to choke a donkey. <laughs> and all of the guys that... I never heard that. <laughs> all, 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 all of the guys that 
had really worked hard at school or were bumping up in the same clubs that had regular jobs, they had very little money. I'd pull out a big wad of cash that I'd got from crime. You know, felt like I'd made it, but then I deteriorated. And they progressed. And they progressed. Short-term pain, long-term gain, or yeah. short-term... Yeah. Yeah. But, but you didn't know you just that's where I felt you fitted in mm. I hated it I realised that by the time I was 23 that I hate this it's not right either but where do you go when you don't know when you don't know it's something I thought about and it's only because my children are three and three and seven <clears throat> the environment and the right upbringing I think is uh, and maybe that's just a, it's the father in me that focuses a lot on that nowadays but creating the right nourishing and encouraging and and um, the right kind of environment so they can go off and they know how to deal with the problems that life is inevitably going to present to us later on in life. So I think all that's important, but I think it's the other end of the scale. It's how they respond to it. That's mm. the key, I think, is mm. seeing how do my children respond to situations because that's going to be the determination of the choices that they're going to make. Yeah. You know, are they have they got the ability to respond in a healthy manner? Because I'm still learning that in lots of ways in my life. And again, I rely on other people to help me respond in in certain areas of life that I don't trust my own responses. They're mm. still too aggressive. That I need to help other people. So. So even the kids that have been brought up in the wonderful families, that's not a guarantee that they're going to grow up all wonderful. It's a lot higher. Like when I think we did that with the aces, we could see that growing up in very disturbing childhoods is going to give you a massive disadvantage in in doing well. But but you know we meet kids brought up in really good families that didn't. I think again they had this addiction thing going on, this response problem, and you know that's why I like to liken it to like a peanut allergy. That if you're born with a peanut allergy, you're never going to know till you have a peanut. Mm. So if you never have a peanut, I think that's the thing in America where it's caused these opiate crises is that the doctors are giving it willy-nilly, pretty much giving opiates to people that uh, on prescription that never normally would be introduced to opiates and and it's kicked off their addiction. And so, you know, they've, they, they, they've then they end up buying it off the streets. But so I kind of like that idea that it's like an allergy, but you'd never know until you do it. But until you activate it, until it yeah. gets activated. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it is it's an incredibly complex um, thing addiction because I have encountered people that come from the most loveliest house, the most loveliest mum and dad. They've got jobs. There's money in the banks. They they've got a two and two hundred and fifty thousand pound house that they're going to inherit in eight years and all of these things, and they ended up exactly where I ended up. Yeah, well, Kelly, I think she says she ended up, she didn't feel comfortable in her nice household. Mm. Now, look, I'm sure there was issues in there. She felt comfortable on the council estate. Yeah. And, uh, it's, so that lower companionship seemed to work better for her. So again, it's something going on in the brain, isn't it? I think there you go. It's all about environment, isn't it? Ultimately, the responses to these situations and then the environment that you're in that can nurture those responses mm. yeah, I, think, I think so mate. I think once society gets their head around that mm. I think we're going to have a lot better treatments because mm. we'll be able to monitor people a lot better absolutely 
Okay, well, I think that's our time. So thank you very much for joining us today, Anthony. And if you're interested, I'd love to get you back on again in the future because it sounds like you've got a lot of experience and, mm. and you're doing a good job putting it across. So I really appreciate that. Cool. So, yeah, thank you. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, mate. Thank, thank you, Lester. You. Thank you, everybody. Um, again, I'll put some links in the show notes for a few articles that we've written and some links to Alcoholics Anonymous and narcotics anonymous and uh, once again we do offer free assessments as well so if you want to give us a call and talk about anything addiction related then you know we're happy to go through that with you thank, thank you very you. much fantastic God bless.